Hey, good morning. Um, as uh, Pastor Bethany said, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you are uh, new or visiting us for the first time, we want to welcome you. We're thrilled to have you with us. Um, before we get started, I do want to mention uh, just one thing. Over the years, Oregon has had some incredible, legendary Hall of Fame athletes connected to our state. We had uh, Bill Walton. We'll see his picture here in a second. Big Red, who led the Blazers uh, to their only NBA championship in 1977. Anybody remember that? Yeah. Nice. Awesome. We had Clyde the Glide Drexler. Uh, you know he is my favorite player of all time. They're all dressed in their tuxedos, uh, being inducted into the Hall of Fame. But we have a new legend, a new Hall of Fame inductee. <laughs> Yeah, last week, Pastor Dave said he wouldn't be here this week because he was going back to his college's reunion. In his humility, what he didn't tell you is he was also being inducted into his college's Hall of Fame. Pretty, pretty legit. Unfortunately, I was not able to get a picture of Dave in his suit that he has. It's like Bill Walton's suit. Um, but we're thrilled to have a, have a legend, have a Hall of Famer with us. But uh, yeah. Before we get, well, as we get going, uh, as Pastor Bethany was saying, and by the way, another Hall of Fame pastor, if, if you can be married to me for 20 years, you belong in some Hall of Fame somewhere. Um, <clears throat> but as Pastor Bethany said, we are in our second week of our We Are series. And over the next seven weeks, we're, we're in one, where this is our second one, we're looking at seven distinctives that we believe should mark us increasingly as a community of Christ followers here at Cedar Mill. And again, last, last week, Pastor Dave preached on the first distinctive, we are a people who love extravagantly. And this morning, we're going to look at our second distinctive, which is we are a people who hope relentlessly. Now I'm going to let you in on a little secret about preaching. Whenever you study and prepare for a sermon, a text or a subject, God tends to take you through a real challenging process as you study and challenge you with what you're going to preach. And this sermon was no different. I was eager to preach on the subject of hope, but also felt a sense of heaviness because our family has recently walked through a situation um, where hope is really hard to come by. Over the years, I've shared stories about our journey in foster care. Nearly all of those stories have been stories where we found ourselves in almost hopeless situations, but God miraculously intervened and redeemed them. Essentially, stories where I could share of his faithfulness and in the conclusion that we could put a bow on that story. Unfortunately, right now, we are in the midst of a story where hope is hard to come by and no bow can be put on it. It's a story that seems hopeless. It's a story that makes no sense to us right now. Eight years ago, we welcomed a little baby girl into our home through foster care. She lived with us close to a year and then was returned to her mother. Bethany continued to mentor her mother, and we remained in their lives. We love this family. And a year after our foster daughter was returned to her mother, her mother called Bethany and said, I'm pregnant, and asked if we could adopt 
her new child. We said yes, and many of you know our daughter Mariah. And over the years, we have remained in relationship with this mom and our former foster daughter. But tragically, over the years, we've also witnessed incidences of abuse that we've had to report. And when I say abuse, I mean things I can't even utter in public. Eventually, DHS removed her from her mother's custody. And after bouncing through countless homes, sent her to a residential treatment facility. The county said she is the most difficult and traumatized child they've seen in 20 years. After a year of visiting her in the residential facility, the call came asking us to take her into our home. We prayed and were joined by many of you in prayer. And we became convinced God was calling us into deeper water and to say yes. But friends, when we said yes, we were full of trepidation and fear. We knew she was violent, even at eight. We knew she was abusive, even at eight. But we, but we were optimistic that with love and care in our home, that she could heal. But I remember walking in here one Sunday, sitting right over here, shaken after she had had a traumatic, violent outburst at home, lifted a brick at one of us and our babysitter. And then sitting here as Luis preached, she decided to ask Jesus into her heart. Happens when Luis preaches, right? <laughs> but I remember weeping over her. And my, my tears were a mix of sadness and unspeakable joy. Bethany and I have always said that if a child comes into our home and can't go home to their family safely... They can stay with us. We can be their final stop. We can be their family. But after three months and countless attempts to harm our younger children, having her in our home became extremely unsafe for everyone. For a while, we were just disoriented. Why would God call us to stay in this child's life for eight years? And then when she's finally able to be in our home, she can't stay. But then some dear friends of ours offered to take her as their foster child. We couldn't think of a better family. And we thought, maybe this was God's plan all along. Maybe God just used us to get her into her forever family. Maybe we could actually put a bow on this story too. But within six weeks, she had blown through their home, her 27th foster home over the course of her life. She is now in her 28th home, but it's not looking good. If there ever was a hopeless situation, it is this one. There is no bow to be found and tied on this story. But I share my story with you this morning so that you know when I'm preaching this sermon on what it means to hope relentlessly, I'm preaching to both of us. So with that said... Would you open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 32? If you do not have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. If not, just relax and follow on the screens behind me. Now, just to provide some context, the book of Romans is written by the Apostle Paul, likely in Corinth, to the church in 
Rome. For many, including Martin Luther, the book of Romans is their favorite book in all the Bible. Anybody love Romans? Yeah? All right. Luther referred to it as the most important piece in the New Testament and also said, it is impossible to meditate on this letter too much or too well. But let's go ahead and read. Verse 16, follow with me. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So friends, this morning I want to do three things together. I want to answer these three questions. What does it mean to hope relentlessly? Why is it essential that our hope be relentless? And what are three promises we can cling to found in this text that give us hope? So first question, what does it mean to hope relentlessly? First, let's define what the Bible means when it speaks of hope. People use the word hope all the time in our world. And a group of people who probably use it the most are sports fans. <laughs> As a diehard Blazer fan, I would say I've been hoping for the Blazers to win the title again my entire life. 
Seriously, do you know what I look like when the Blazers won the title? The week the Blazers won the title. That's what I look like. <laughs> That's right, the Blazers won the title just a few days before I was born and haven't won since. But when I say I hope the Blazers win the title, what I'm essentially saying is I really wish the Blazers would win the title. I'm optimistic it will happen with Damian Lillard, that's for sure. But I can't say honestly I'm confident, expectant, or certain that they will win the title this year. Now, when the Bible uses the word hope, there is no wishing or forced optimism about it. When the Bible uses the word hope, it is a hope that is confident, expectant, and certain. It is more like how we think about a woman who is pregnant. We don't say a woman is wishing for a baby or optimistic she's going to have a baby. We say she is expecting a baby. Now, many of you are expecting this sermon to finish. <laughs> You're not wishing. You have a confident expectation it will end. Keep hoping, right? You haven't seen it end, but you are confident it will. But again, this expectant hope is a completely different thing than what the world means by hope, which is essentially optimism or wishing. J.I. Packer puts it this way when differentiating between the two ideas of hope. Optimism hopes for the best without any guarantee of its arriving and is often no more than whistling in the dark. Christian hope, by contrast, is faith looking ahead to the fulfillment of God's promises. Optimism is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come. Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of his life, every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth, on the basis of God's own commitment, that the best is yet to come. Friends, biblical hope is looking back at Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection and confidently expecting that he will keep his promises. This is the reason why John Piper says Romans 8.32 articulates the logic of this hope perfectly. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God is willing to give up his son, who is of infinite worth, because of his great love for us, we can be confident he will keep his promises to us in Jesus. So for us as Christ followers, the hope we have has no need for wishing or forced optimism. It is certain. This idea of hope is found throughout Scripture. In 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12, Peter reminds his readers of the gospel that God gave up his own son and conquered sin and death for us. He refers to the hope we have as a living hope. Then look at what he says in verse 13. He begins verse 13 with the word, therefore. Therefore, preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, when you're reading your Bible, keep an eye out for that word, therefore. This is typical of both Peter and Paul. And the pattern is this. 
God did this, therefore we should do this. And what is Peter telling us to do here? He is saying, because of what God has done for us in Jesus, therefore set your hope fully on him. But what does it mean to set your hope fully? Or for us, because the idea is the same, hope relentlessly. Look again at verse 13. I'm going to read it one more time. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully, hope relentlessly, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, notice the phrase, prepare your minds for action. The Greek there is essentially, gird up your loins. Now, some of you are probably wondering, what are loins? Or you're wondering, Paul, should we even be talking about loins in church? (laughs) Yeah, we're good. We're good. I can even show you a picture, okay? This is what it means for a man to gird up his loins, okay? So in biblical times, people, people wore robes, right? And you can't really move fast in a robe. So they would pull up their robe and tuck it into their belt so they could move quickly and decisively. Likewise, Peter is saying, If we are to set our hope fully, our hope relentlessly, we must ready our minds in the process. So how do we ready our minds so that we can hope relentlessly? Friends, we use our minds by meditating on God's word and his promises to us. Paul says in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And Piper puts it this way, Get alone with God and preach his word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence. Essentially, we remind ourselves of the gospel. We preach the gospel to ourselves. And friends, this should fill us with unmovable hope. Second question, why must our hope be relentless? The answer to that question is simply, As we journey through life, our hope in Jesus' promises will be challenged. If we do not hope relentlessly, our minds, or using our minds to recount what God has done for us, preaching the gospel to ourselves, our hope will drift. And our hopes will drift to the things of this world, living as though things other than God's promises can offer us hope, give us ultimate joy, give us peace, and secure our future. And this has been common with humanity from the beginning. Remember the garden? Remember the Israelites always forgetting God's faithfulness and promises? I mean, almost the minute Moses leaves the camp, they forget his faithfulness, they forget his promises, and they start fashioning idols for themselves, and then hoping in them. Remember the golden calf? Moloch and the child sacrifices. Now, I don't think any of us have actually fashioned a golden calf in our backyard and placed our hope in it or sacrificed our kids on the altar. But I know our hope can easily drift to things that can become false gods. What is it for you? Where does your hope drift? What things do you find more security in than God's promises to you? And make no mistake, we make sacrifices to these false gods, like our time, our emotions, 
our energy. And friends, the danger is we can take perfectly good things we desire and let them become ultimate things that we place our hope in. But those hopes, just like the ridiculous golden calf, end up disappointing us. They simply cannot withstand the weight of our hope. And our hope drifts fast, so we must hope relentlessly. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Take hold of this hope as an anchor for the soul. If we are not anchored in our true hope, when trials and suffering come, our hopes in this world will not sustain us. I read a book in college by Viktor Frankl entitled, Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl, I believe, was a Holocaust survivor, and his book recounts and examines the responses of those who experienced the horror and the suffering of the Holocaust. Tim Keller often uses an excerpt from Frankl's book to illustrate this point, and I want to read it to you too. But Frankl said, some of the prisoners responded to their situations by becoming brutal and cruel themselves. After being treated cruelly, they became cruel. Sometimes it was a quest for power. Sometimes it was just bitterness. But others would just give up. And this is what Frankel writes. Usually this happened quite suddenly. The symptoms of which were quite familiar to us, experienced camp inmates. We all feared this moment in our friends. It usually began one morning when the prisoners would simply refuse to get dressed or wash or go out to the parade grounds for inspection. No entreaties, no blows, no threats would have any effect. They would just lay there. They had given up. Nothing bothered them anymore because they no longer had hope. Many, he said, held on to the hope that if they stayed alive, their health, their family, their professional achievements, their fortune, their position in society, if they could just make it through Auschwitz, it would all be restored to them. That was their hope. After liberation, though, he said many of them came back to their homes and found that all those things were irretrievably gone. He said many of them a disturbingly high percentage of them went into deep depression and even committed suicide after having survived through the concentration camps. Why? Because their hopes had been on the restoration of these things, but those hopes had been shattered. Frankel said, the only ones that truly overcame Auschwitz were those that had a fixed reference point for their hope beyond this world. Something they held on to that was out of the grasp of death, destruction, and the Nazis couldn't touch. And then Frankel makes this statement. Life in a concentration camp tears open the soul and exposes its depths, its foundations. Friends, trials and pain expose where our hope lies. Friends, we must cling to the immovable promises we have in Jesus. That is our fixed reference point. These unmovable promises are things that death, disease, and destruction cannot touch. 
Finally, our third thing that I want to do this morning. I want to look at what are the promises found in this text, Romans 8, that give us hope. We see the first one in verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the first promise we see in this text is, by his Spirit, he promises to be with us through everything. He promises to be with us. His Spirit groans in us. What does this mean? First, it means he is with us. And God is mindful of us. Second, groan implies deep emotion. He feels our pain with us. The loss of a child, the loss of a spouse, the loss of your innocence. When you're alone after your spouse has left. When you're alone in the doctor's office and you're about ready to get that diagnosis. Or when you're just alone and feeling the full weight of loneliness. Jesus feels it with you, friends. And his spirit groans and intercedes for us. I think one of the most heartfelt, intimate stories in Jesus' life is recorded in John 11 when he goes to Lazarus' tomb. And what does he do? He just weeps. Friends, Jesus promises to be with us and by his spirit prays over us. Even when we don't know how to pray or just can't, he is with you. He feels your pain. He will never leave you. Friends, cling to this promise and, hope, and the hope we have in Jesus. The second promise we find in our text is in verse 28 and 29. Follow along with me. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among, among many brothers. Now people often overlook the last part of verse 28 and all of 29 and stop at good. God works all things together for good. But what's the good? Verse 29 tells us the good God is working for us is not so much about giving us better circumstances, but making us more like Jesus, becoming like Jesus. The promise we see here is this. God promises that he is using all things to make us more like Jesus. No matter what, and I mean no matter what you are walking through, it is not meaningless it is not wasted. God is accomplishing his purpose in you to conform you into the image of his son. The loss of a job, a challenging marriage, a chronic illness, depression, anxiety, a loss of a loved one. God is using it all. He wastes nothing in our lives. But if we could only understand how he is doing that in the midst of those experiences... 
How exactly is he using them to make us more like Jesus? It might make our circumstances easier to process. Like, God, I will go through this, and I will cling to your promise that you're making me more like Jesus. But could you just show me soon how that is happening in this? Friends, we want to make sense of it. We want to have that, oh, that's what he's doing moment. We want to be able to put a bow on it. We want to be able to put a bow on that part of our story. But in this chapter, Paul indicates that much of the good God brings out of our suffering will be seen only in eternity. Notice verse 18, he points out the glory that is going to be revealed. It's not all experience now. In verse 25, he says we have to wait for it. We eagerly wait for it with patience. Look at verse 24. We are saved in hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. If you can see it, it's not hope. It's sight. It's like this. Remember the TV shows in the 80s? Remember those? Like Magnum P.I.? Anybody remember Magnum P.I.? Right. Matlock, yeah. All right. Murder, She Wrote. And by the way, we have two huge Murder, She Wrote fans on staff, Pastor Bethany and Pastor Ashley. Uh, <clears throat> but remember those 80s shows? There would be like a crisis at the beginning. And then within the hour, Angela Lansbury or Tom Selleck had settled everything and resolved everything. But now we know the best stories are not the ones that resolve quickly. The shows we watch now introduce a crisis and like eight seasons later or like eight years of our life later, <laughs> we get resolution. Friends, sometimes we will have to wait to understand how God is using some, something in our lives to make us more like Jesus. For our family, it's waiting to understand why God is still walking us through our story with our former foster daughter. But based upon his great love for us in Jesus, friends, cling to his promise that he's using all things to make us like Jesus. And that someday in this life or in the life to come in eternity, we will understand the third and final, final promise we see here in this text is God promises to finish what he started. Verse 30. And those who he, whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, glorified means someday he promises you're going to be with Jesus. When he summons you home or when you return with him and he comes to redeem this world. And what will that be like? Look at what Paul says in verse 22. Creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. We also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Did you hear that? God promises that he will redeem and restore our bodies. And the over 40 crowd said, amen. <laughs> a couple months ago, Dave kindly showed an age-progressed picture of me when I'm in my 70s. <laughs> Love my friend. Let's just say this. I am lucky my wife loves me so much. 
And even though I don't totally look like that now, I feel like it. You know what makes me tired now? This, preaching. I'm literally going to go home and face plant my head into a pillow and take a nap. And I used to play rugby. Now just talking makes me tired. (laughs) But seriously, God promises one day he's going to redeem our bodies. No more chronic pain. No more depression. No more illness. I love what Johnny Erickson Tata says in response to this promise. And if you are unfamiliar with Johnny, she was injured in a diving accident as a teenager and has experienced quadriplegia for almost 70 years. But this is what Johnny said. When I get to heaven, I'm I'm going to push my wheelchair to the throne of Jesus. Notice, I'll be walking. I'm going to thank him for every character-refining work he did in and through me because of this wheelchair. And then I'm going to ask Jesus to send this wheelchair straight to hell. (laughs) Because it is only needed and relevant because of the wreckage of sin. Friends, along with our bodies, God is going to redeem all of creation. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? Although most of us are not physically in a wheelchair, we all have those places of pain and struggle and difficulty in our lives that God uses to conform us. But I don't know about you, but I can't wait for them to be gone. For all things to be set right, Paul says in verse 18 that heaven is so glorious that the, that the painfulness of the worst pain here can't even compare to that which is to come. And Paul isn't minimizing your pain or what you're going through or what you're facing. Paul knew pain. He was beaten, imprisoned, and suffered with chronic illness his whole life. He is just saying that compared to the glory that is going to be revealed, even the worst pain we experience in this life is only light and momentary. We'll finish with this. Last Sunday, I served with our Team Up ministry. You heard about it in the announcements. And got to hang out with one of our Cedar Mill kids who's in the second grade and who is also blind. As we sat together during the lesson, he started asking me questions about heaven. I answered the questions to the best of my ability, but I was also trying to listen to the story that the teacher was telling. So I was a bit distracted. But then I felt like God was saying, hey, hey, hey. Pay attention to this boy. This conversation isn't just for him. It's for you. The last question he asked about heaven was whether or not the things that are wrong with our bodies now will be fixed. When I explained that we will have restored bodies and everything will be made right, he paused for a few seconds and said, Oh, that sounds so beautiful. I want to cry. And then I realized, even though he experiences lack of sight, he was seeing things much clearer than I was. He was full of hope for what is to come. As Tolkien said, heaven is when everything sad becomes untrue.
Friends, in a moment, we are going to come to these tables. When we do, we remember the foundation for all of our hope. Jesus came and rescued us from sin and death. And friends, it's a moment for us to hope relentlessly, reminding ourselves that if he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, we can confidently and expectantly cling to the unmovable promises we have in Jesus. So hope relentlessly and come when you're ready.